0: Hello and welcome back to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. Once again, I'm your host Chris Walkluck and I'll be sitting down in one on one hour long conversations with current Pender Island residents to hear the stories that brought them to this tasty little island we live on and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I'll be speaking with Joe Down. Now, if you know Joe like I know Joe, then you're going to know him as that guy who owns Joe's Place, that restaurant at the Driftwood Center. Well, today we're going to get to hear Joe talk a little bit about that and a whole bunch of other things, including his love of basketball while he was growing up in Sydney just across the water from here. We're going to get to hear him describe how he met his wife, Alex. We'll get to hear Joe talk about some travel stories from his past and... We're also going to get to hear Joe speak at length about an incident that happened in 2011 where his son was diagnosed with a very serious illness. And Joe will describe how the community came to rally around him and his family in a very significant way. All that is on the menu, plus we have some below average audio quality on this interview because... I was using a new mic for this interview for the very first time, and it seems as if I did not set the audio levels properly because I'm still working through the kinks on how to use this mic properly. (sighs) It's been driving me nuts in post-production to try to round out the sound. It sounds more echoey than usual, quite a bit more. If you've listened to previous podcasts, I think you'll be able to tell the difference. If you have not listened to a podcast before, trust me, it does not usually sound like this. Uh, my apologies to Joe. My apologies to you, the listener. But now that I got that off my chest, it doesn't change the fact that it's still a great interview with an amazing guy. So, without further ado, here is my interview with Joe Down. Joe, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm, uh, Glad that I got up the courage to finally say yes and come and chat.
0: Yeah, me too. We've been uh, trying to to do this for maybe like a month now or so. And there's a power outage today that made it a little bit difficult. We're supposed to be doing this at 10 a.m. this morning, but...
1: I know. we Originally, uh, there was a little bobbing and weaving going on as I built up confidence. And then the, the power outage today was another like, oh, maybe I can use the power outage to get around doing this because i was getting a little bit uh, gunshot but my wife my wife encouraged me that uh you should go and have a chat and you got some interesting things to say so and more often than not she's she's correct
0: awesome well it's yeah. good to have you here thanks uh thanks for coming in on this uh this yes. rainy thursday yes. afternoon yeah. there we go all right well uh, let's jump into the traditional first question of this podcast and that is what brought you to pender island
1: well i woke up one morning uh my wife was crying beside me and I I looked over to her and and she was almost uh, inconsolable. She was just so upset and so, so distraught. I said, what's the matter? She said, I'm pregnant. I said, and I remember chuckling just like that, thinking and saying, that's not so bad. You know, we're fine. But the truth is, is that um we had just got back from england and and uh, we were struggling financially and and you know even though i was working at a a great job with a great company i was very middle management and the thought and the prospect of having another mouth to feed was a little bit scary and i needed to really figure out a way to create more revenue to to feed my new baby that was on the way we initially Weren't really sure whether we were going to have a family or not. I mean, we really had to talk about it for a few days, but eventually we realized that you know it's it's the right thing to do. You know, I remember I remember specifically driving up the Papay Highway, driving by the driving range, thinking about a very small person holding my hand, and I sort of sort of burst into tears while I was driving up the highway. And I still remember that moment, and that was the moment I knew that I was going to be a dad, and and uh, that we're absolutely going to have a family. We were in a situation where we were living in a a loft of a house right on Fairfield and Quadra in Victoria. And uh, I was working at Milestones on the Inner Harbor just a few minutes walk away. It was nice. I mean, the the people I worked with were really great. And I got to meet clientele from all over the world, which is one of the reasons I love... uh, Hospitality, but I was very middle management. I had to wear a tie every day and a vest every day. And then I used to wander to work cursing and swearing because I hate wearing ties and I hate being that, and that all pent up. And it wasn't a position that I was going to stay at very long because I, I like to be in charge. I like to be the guy running the restaurant. I decided to look into my uh, junk mail folder and my trash in my uh, Hotmail account because there was an email that was sent to me uh, three or four months earlier when we had just arrived home from England. And it was from a a lady, a a local lady on Pender Island, who said to me that there is a pub and a resort on Pender Island that was looking for someone to be the bar manager or a head bartender or something along those lines. And initially when I got that email, um, even though we were struggling financially and I couldn't seem to pick up a job in Victoria, even though I knew everybody, even though even though I couldn't find a job, my initial response to that email was, there's no way in heck I'm going to move to Pender Island. I was certain that Pender Island was basically for yoga instructors or artists or doesn't everybody just smoke pot on Pender Island? Isn't isn't that what the island's all about? Um, I was so naive. I had no idea what not just Pender Island, but all of the Gulf Islands were about. I, I grew up in Sydney, and to be that ignorant and that uh, not knowing about such great local communities. I look back now, it's a little bit on the embarrassing side, but I thought, you know what? I I dug out that email from my trash folder and I thought, I'm going to write her back and say, did you end up hiring someone? I'd love to look at the job. So I made an arrangement to Georgina Weber was the lady's name who uh, wrote me the letter. She was a, a friend of mine from my youth and she sort of followed my hospitality career so I wrote her a letter, and and uh, she arranged a meeting with the current operators of the of the Port Browning Marina. And uh, I decided to come over to Pender Island with my wife after having a couple of uh, initial meetings and to check the island out. And we met some of the locals. I met some of the staff. Um, we looked at the view. We looked at the accommodation. It was a day much like today. It was raining and miserable and windy, and and uh, it wasn't very nice. The Queen of Cumberland uh, was. Was all over the place on the way over. We didn't stay for lunch at the pub. I, I really just wanted to get back to the ferry because I wasn't really sure about it. And and on the way home, I looked at my fiance at the time. I said, "So what do you think?" And she says, "I love it. Let's let's move over there." And from that moment on, I I focused myself on uh, the job. And the job was to dig my feet in and and get my hands on this property. And do what I can to uh, put it back on the map, basically for the boaters and and uh, the local community. And and it was a pub that it needed need a little bit of uh, attention. So I loved working there, and I had some great relationships with my staff. I can't say enough about the staff, and and obviously the clientele are, are fantastic. But for the first longest time, I was saying earlier that I was really here just for the job, and I was here to create revenue for a property that really the ownership group wanted it to be sold. But as time went by, I realized that our little boy had been born. The The community has sort of embraced us and embraced him. And I realized that this place we had come to had transformed itself into a location for employment to all of a sudden it was turning into our home. And, uh, in hindsight, I don't know why it took me two or three years to come to that realization because it really was our home right off the bat. I, I can't imagine living or working or thinking about going anywhere else now. We we absolutely love it here. You know, we we were immediately embraced and looked after. The, the first season of Port Browning was obviously an eye-opener. I'd never ran a marina before. I don't camp. I've never camped. Um, I don't believe in it.
0: <laughs> you don't believe in camping, really?
1: <laughs> no, I, I would much rather stay in a nice motel or have a porch or something like that. But uh, I slept in a truck once up at Lake Cowichan. I slept on our deck once when we lived in Sydney. And that for me, that that's camping. That's, that's enough. I'm more of a cheap motel, sleeping in a bed, accommodation guy. But I have a little boy who wants to go camping. And I have a wife that loves camping. And... They've gone on camping trips, but I've yet to go on a camping trip with them. It's such a guilty, guilty thing to think about or say, but, uh, yeah, so, uh, I'm I'm 47 now and, and, uh, soon I'm going to go on a proper camping trip. I, can, I, can, I have to go on a camping trip,
0: <laughs> okay, Joe. This might blow your mind, but uh, my wife Jenna and I yeah. we spent about three months camping in our yard this summer. <laughs> yeah, but we put a mattress out there, though, right? We bought a bigger tent and uh, like, we we slept out there. It was it was addictive. It was hard to sleep inside because it was so nice to be in the fresh air. We but did... you can start with your yard, though.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I've uh, well, we we slept in our spare room a few times this uh, this summer for and with the window wide open. So that was. Camping esque, but when I was raised, you know, my mom and dad. I'm the youngest of five. It wasn't really something we ever did. We never really went camping. We I remember us having a tent once. Uh, We lived on five acres of land up by the airport uh, in Sydney, and uh, I don't even remember sleeping in the tent. I always remember the end of the play day was done, and we would go back into the house. So lots of people are raised lots of different ways, right or wrong, and it just wasn't something that our our family did.
0: Yeah, yeah so
1: but i mean uh we did other things that were were fun as well
0: okay well let's talk about that let's hear about uh <laughs> your your parents a little bit and uh, where you were born
1: well we uh, i was born in in 1970 in in a little village called ash in the southeast of england in kent and it's about uh 13 miles outside of sandwich all of my brothers and sisters and my mom and dad were all born in the same little village I'm sure if my eldest sister were here right now, she'd correct me if I was incorrect, but I'm pretty sure we were all born at home, like by a midwife. Wow. I'm, I'm fairly certain. That's that's what I've always believed, so I'm going to say it's right. And uh, my mom and dad were born uh, just down the lane from each other. they would known each other, they knew each other their whole life. In 1975, my dad was in the Royal Air Force, and he was a, a structural sheet metal worker. He, he was an aeronautical engineer, and and the business was not booming anymore in the southeast of England, and and he was looking for new opportunities. And we moved to Canada. I don't remember the decision making process. I was only four and a half. I know that it was a big step to move uh, five children and my mom and dad to to Canada. Um, not a day goes by that I don't thank my parents for that decision. What a what a wonderful country to bring your children to. I've gone back to England, and England's lovely as well. And there's all kinds of great things about England. and I've worked over there, and but I mean, uh, what a big risk and what a big leap of faith it was, my dad to to decide to come over here, and I'm glad he did. We uh, we spent some time in Manitoba. Uh, we landed in Winnipeg, spent some time in Gimli, moved up to Thompson. We were in Thompson, Manitoba for three and a half years. However cold and icy and dry you think it is it's it's that <laughs> yeah, and more. um I remember walking to school and <laughs> it reminds me of that episode where well, I used to walk to school in fifty to minus fifty well, I used to walk to school uphill minus fifty five and that's I could carry on like that because it was darn cold going to school there, but eventually I think the the north of Canada. Kind of got the better of mom and dad, and and we started to move west. And a quick stop in Calgary, and and uh, eventually we made our way to Sydney. I'm fairly certain it was 1975, in, in the summer. For those who know Sydney well, obviously it's developed a lot since 1979. Um, where the Emerald Isle Hotel or Motel is by Thrifties in Sydney, there used to be a little motel there called the the Kregma Motel. It was a sort of a U-shaped motel. We lived in the motel for our first six or seven months, I think. It might have been longer, might have been shorter. I don't really know because I was still pretty young. Um, but I know that it was only a couple of hundred yards to Sydney Elementary School. So I used to pedal to Sydney Elementary School. My dad got a job working for, uh, I believe it was for Viking Air at the airport. He spent some time with the fire and firemen. But dad was, uh, you know, he was a uh, Monday to Friday, 8.30 to 5 guy, you know, always had the weekends off. After we lived in the motel, we ended up moving to a little property, right, literally right by, there's a graveyard by the airport, um, by the runways, right by the the control tower on, um, if anyone knows where Mary's restaurant is or the air cadet hall, there, there used to be a house on five and a half acres of land there. We lived there for a while we sort of bounced around sydney a little bit we i i recall one two three we we must have lived in six or seven different houses in sydney when i grew up oh wow uh, we weren't really much into the uh move to a house and stay there for years and years and years Mum and dad for whatever reason you know they never really told me or us what struggles they went through but we we moved around a little bit it was not like dad was in the army or the air force we weren't you know, army brats where we're moving to different parts of the country. But again, right or wrong, I was raised to think that you should never buy a house. And it took me decades and decades to get out of that mindset of mom and dad always believe you should always rent a house because you don't want to commit yourself to a mortgage. And it took me forever to realize that, oh, investing in real estate actually is a good thing, you know. So, but I mean, I'm not going to, I don't want to critique them on their choices. Uh, Because they provided uh, five kids with a great home and we were always, we were never without. We always, we always had and needed what we wanted. What were your parents' names? Uh, My dad's name was Reg, Reginald Francis Down. And my mom was Patricia and Joan Down. Pat and Reg, they were known as. Pat and Reg. Pat and Reg, yeah. Uh, Both of my parents, uh, we opened the restaurant in May of 2016. And my dad... Unexpectedly passed away just before the restaurant opened. A couple of months before the restaurant opened, and my mom had passed away a couple of months before that in Victoria. My mom was ill, and luckily we were able to get to the, the last day and a half. All my brothers and sisters, all of my uh, cousins, all the husbands of the wives and, and wives of the husbands. We all got to be with mom for the last day. We were there. And just she slowly passed away. So it was. It was, uh, you know, if there was ever a way that anyone could pass away peacefully surrounded by their entire family, uh, mom, mom got to have that. So, and now they're uh, they're both planted in a plant pot in my sister's backyard together, and and uh, you know, <laughs> they used to have some pretty ridiculous conversations and fights, mom and dad. So <laughs> I'm sure they're nibbling away at each other uh, right now in the plant. So, but uh, you know, that's why when you come into Joe's place, you'll see things on the menu like bubble and squeak or corned beef hash or bowlingless breakfast. So there's Yorkshire puddings on there because I wanted to pay homage to my parents. Basically um, there's some, there's a picture in one of the corners of uh, a painting they used to have in their living room, like it, to, to the regular guest, it just looks like a, a regular picture. But for me and my sisters and my family, it, it has special meaning to us. So, but you know, they they spend a lot of time on Pender Island. They used to come over here and visit really really often. Our little boy Henry was. Uh, we always joke about how he's sort of the golden grandchild and how they loved him the most. <laughs> or they I don't want to say that they loved all the grandchildren equally, but he was <laughs> the favorite. <laughs> so, um, mom and dad, you know, we would we would entertain guests uh, occasionally. We have friends that would come from England or family that would come from England or. Calgary friends that would come from Calgary and we would take them on like the five island ferry that would go around and go and visit all the islands but we'd never get off the ferry and never go visit Pender Island or never go see um, Saturna or Galliano or we would always look at the Gulf Islands as being just really far away and then we would always go back home so when the opportunity came up to come to Pender Island I used to think back to mom and dad's Five Island ferry rides all the time, and I'd only ever seen Pender Island in passing. I'm like, oh, there's the Pender stop, there's Otter Bay. I guess we're heading back to Swartz Bay now. So,
0: okay, yeah. And so, when you when you first came to Pender Island with the job opportunity, and it all unfolded from there, like how how was the first few years living on the island for you? How did it go?
1: <laughs> it was it was great. I mean, uh, understanding and learning about life on Pender Island. I had to spend a full year. I had to do a full cycle of understanding what it was like running a restaurant on Bender Island um, in terms of things breaking down, contacts, commitments, reliability from people, you know, understanding that there isn't just a multitude of electricians or plumbers or or uh, guys that can help you. Like you, you really have to build and nurture relationships with people and you have to put a lot of trust in people and you have to be reliable and and uh, running a marina, again, it's uh, learning a whole new clientele base, learning you know, what, which side is port and starboard and with bow and stern and why people like to tie up their boats certain ways. There's lots of key people in that I can remember that I spend a lot of time listening to and learning from. People that had been on Pender Island for 30, 40 years or had been coming to the marina uh, for 30, 40 years, you were an in depth wealth of knowledge in terms of understanding and learning what island life is about.
0: You mean just like having conversations at the bar with people and just yeah, kind of looking...
1: like, uh, I would really, I would really, um, I'm a big fan of whenever I'm going to make a decision on something, I always talk to the people who actually know what they're talking about, as opposed to just going ahead and saying, okay, this is how we're going to do things. You can't just, if, if you get a delivery, and you're missing six items on the delivery. Well, like I was saying before about living on an island, you're literally on an island. You can't just quickly run to the store and get some prime rib and go and get this and go and get that to fill the gap of what just got delivered. You've got to figure things out on the fly because you're on an island, basically. And so anyway, the the learning curve of living here was... Uh, it, was it was pretty steep. You know, it was... Uh, understanding the community. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, when you're making decisions at a pub like that or a restaurant like that, even with my restaurant that I have now, you I sort of put my fingers on the pulse of the community and tried to figure out what they like. Instead of doing the things that I thought people should eat or doing the things that I thought people should have, I decided, and I decided this with all my businesses over the years or pe- places that I ran. It's why not do the things that people want to have as opposed to trying to force them to have something that, that you think they should have. And, it, you know, it seemed to work and, you know, I'm, I try to be as friendly as I can with people and try to be as kind as I can with people and patient when I, as I can with people and seems to have worked out so yeah. far. Yeah. Um, I remember my first experience going to the disc park. I remember I used to walk my dog at this park with my wife and our brand new baby. And there was these funny baskets in various parts of this park. And I remember thinking to myself a few things like, boy, they sure have funny looking recycled bins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Or I would think that they were spots where people would leave hay, and the deer would come and eat hay. That's yeah,
0: that makes sense for sure. Yeah, yeah definitely. But, like, uh,
1: but I, the the recycle thing didn't really. I couldn't figure out why or how people would leave cans in these things. Why wouldn't they just put a bottom on these baskets? And so, uh, but as time went by, I realized that there was this game that people loved to play, and, that, and that's disc golf. And and I think back to those thoughts that I had now, and how ridiculous. <laughs> Uh, how ridiculous my thoughts were
0: (laughs) it's funny actually i just uh, did an interview with ben mcconkey a couple episodes ago and and we talked about disc golf and after i finished the episode i thought to myself oh guaranteed there's people who are going to hear that that have no idea what disc golf is or whatever but what joe's describing is that uh, a disc golf basket stands about three feet up on a post and there's a basket and there's some chains and there's a top to it, and anyway, you're supposed to throw it into the baskets, and you throw a disc, meaning a frisbee. Except they're not frisbees. That's a big faux pas in the disc yes, golf world. Yes. But uh, and it's a beloved uh, game on our island here.
1: I, in the last few years, I've, I've picked up the game. I, I found myself a, a disc bag, discs, and and what started out as a bit of a recreational hobby and has turned itself into I'm a, a bit of an addict now. I love it. I've been to the south of England and played disc golf. I've been all over Vancouver Island. I make friends with people on Facebook, and I, I go meet them for rounds of disc golf. And I have a friend of mine in Germany. He's dying for me to come over and play disc golf in Germany. But they're pretty big courses, and you got to have pretty big arms. But uh, so it's just one of those things about learning learning what life is like on Pender Island. There's this whole other. I remember the first time I heard people say that they're going to church on Sunday. Um I always was thinking they were going to the Anglican church but really it's a group of people that meet on Sunday to go play disc golf and it's called going to church it was years before I understood what they were talking about
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah yeah it's called Sunday church it's been called yeah. that for years that's uh, it's the uh, the church of disc golf Uh, At the cathedral, at the park, yeah, definitely. Well, so there was a bit of an adjustment period to to uh, to being on Pender, but you know, actually, you mentioned your wife a few occasions, and I just I'm curious, how did uh, you and your wife Alex meet?
1: We um, I worked at a pub in uh, Brentwood Bay for uh, well, I worked in Brentwood Bay for almost 17 years, and in 2005, the pub that I was working at had just been purchased by a new ownership group. Uh, We were doing a bit of recruiting. And I was running out the door of the pub to go do some banking in summer of 2005. And this young lady came in with a resume, said she wanted to apply for a job. So I, I recognized her last name because I went to school with some of her cousins. I hired her. Alex worked a day a week in our beer and wine store. And I don't know what I said or what I did or anything like that. Somehow we just started hanging out. Certainly, at that point in my life, wasn't uh, you know the thought of meeting someone and getting involved with somebody was not on my list of things to do. But uh, somehow, I just met this girl working at the pub I was working at, and we just started hanging out. And the next thing you know, we were making plans to move to Europe and and go work in a pub in Europe. So,
0: oh, so how quickly did that happen after you met? Uh, to uh,
1: so we met in two thousand and five, uh, the summer, strictly as a job interview, I think. At the Christmas party that year, we danced and I walked her home. And I think my pinky touched her pinky for a moment. And I think one of her girlfriends said something like, she loves you or you love her. You want to marry her. (laughs) It's just sort of strangely uh, foreshadowing what actually was going to (laughs) happen in the next year. So we ended up starting dating... uh, in about March of 2006, so about eight or nine months after she applied for the job at the restaurant, and then we moved to England in uh, the end of 2007. We spent most of 2008 there, so about a, almost two years after we initially met, we we ended up moving to England. You know, we went through some really tough times over there. We worked for some pretty pretty tough people. We made some bad choices in terms of employers. And uh, while we were in England and going through some really, really hard times, it suddenly dawned on me that if this person is willing to endure this type of hard time with me, then we should get married. Right on. And we walked to the top of a hill in uh, the Lake District um, in, in Kendall. and uh, I asked her to marry me. I, I she was obviously taken off guard, and but she said yes. I was I was uh, pretty happy. <laughs> she said yes that moment there, all of a sudden, now we are really a couple. And, you know, it wasn't that long after that, that we moved back to Canada, found out we were pregnant and found our way on our way to Pender Island. I mean, I I looked at other jobs and I looked at other opportunities since being on Pender Island. Actually, I've, I've had job opportunities and opportunities to go work in different parts of the world and different parts of BC. But, um, it would have to be a pretty major offer and opportunity for me to say, okay, let's pack it in on Bender Island and let's go To For starters, our son, who is eight and a half now, um, it's amazing how much of a say uh, a three, four, seven, eight-year-old kid has in what you do in your life. And uh, he loves it here. And I can't imagine ever prying him away from Bender Island to say, hey, do you want to move to Scotland or Spain or something? Because – it would seem like fun in the beginning, but really this is his home. And I think this is where he wants to grow up. And And that initially was the reason why we came to Pender Island is we wanted to raise our son. You know, it's not that we didn't want to raise our son in Victoria. Victoria is nice, but we heard, and we heard correctly that raising a child on Pender Island is pretty cool. And from those people that uh, told us that, they're right.
0: <laughs> well, you know, from the parent perspective, because I'm not a parent myself, but I've heard this from a lot of parents that it's a great place to raise kids. Can you put some words as to why it is such a great place to raise children?
1: Oh boy, that whole batch of kids that were born right around the same time Henry was the same year, the year after they, it seemed like they literally grow up together. All the friends that they have um, from hiking and mushroom hunting to going out to the disc park, kayaking. When Henry was in grade one. Or kindergarten. One of the two years was when I was offered a job somewhere else. And I remember specifically thinking to myself, you know, I don't even know if these people at the school are good educators yet. I just know that they're really nice, wonderful people. And I can't imagine pulling him away. I think he was in kindergarten, actually. And uh, I can't imagine raising him or taking him anywhere else. You know, we can go to the grocery store and from the meat department to the produce to the checkout. Everyone's hi, Henry. How you doing? Not not just with Henry though, but with all the kids. They're always happy to see all the kids, and you know everyone's so courteous and friendly and kind and giving. And you know Henry's got uh, he's got such a supporting network of people here that he doesn't even know about. The, so many people on the island know Henry that you know I think he's probably more well known on the island than I am. You know I have a restaurant, but everyone knows who Henry is and. I'm just his dad that has a restaurant, you know. Well,
0: maybe we'll just touch on uh topic for a little bit, why everybody knows Henry, because uh, there was a specific incident that happened in the past that I'm sure you'd want to uh, talk about a little bit now. So, uh, yeah.
1: yeah. If anything, I mean, uh, of all the reasons, uh, you know, I wanted to talk about why we came to Pender Island, I guess as time goes by and if... If there's people on Pender Island that sit down and listen to this podcast, it's the beginning ability for me to say thank you to everyone on Pender Island for what happened in two thousand eleven. We uh it was August of two thousand eleven, specific date, twelfth to thirteenth, somewhere in there. My wife was in Calgary attending a wedding. Henry had been not feeling well, he was sick. Um, he sort of really wasn't walking. He, he sort of toppled over a few times and, uh, my, my in-laws were here visiting and something just didn't seem right. There was something off with Henry, you know, you know how you just know your own kid better than anyone. And, and, uh, it was a Sunday night or a Sunday afternoon and they said, do you mind if we take Henry to, uh, see the doctor in Victoria? It was the third week of August. There, there was a million people at the pub. The campground was packed. The marina was packed. You know, I knew I had this sinking feeling in my tummy that something just wasn't right. And uh, so they they took him uh, to Sydney to go to the doctor. And I continued about the day, knowing I was distracted. I talked to some of the staff, and they said, "How are you doing?" And I said, "I just something just doesn't feel right." About eleven thirty that night, eleven eleven thirty that night. Um, I got a call. I was in my office. I was, I don't know why, how I, I, I didn't know. I just knew something wasn't right. And I sort of had a moment in my office where I was not crying, but on the verge of tears because I just had an uneasy feeling. And I got a call on my cell phone from uh Victoria General Hospital. And it was a lady on the phone and she said, hi, hi Mr. Down. My name is, I can't remember the lady's name. She says I'm very sorry to say but your son Henry has cancer. And there's a, m- a multitude of a million things that go through your mind. I could hear some crying in the background. I could tell the lady on the phone who was a nurse, a medical professional was herself having a hard time keeping herself together. She was she was upset and um uh, you know, it, on Pender Island at eleven thirty on a Sunday night in the middle of the summertime, there is no, there is no exit strategy. There is no quickly running to the ferry or getting a helicopter or a boat or anything like that. You're you're basically trapped. Um, I'd only been at the the pub for well, I've been at the marina for a couple of years, but I hadn't really trained anyone in the back office yet. I but I knew that I had to get off island and I had to go, go be with my family. There was a 7.05 ferry in the morning, so between 11.30 at night to 7 in the morning, I had to train someone how to open the safe. I had to train someone how to do payroll. I had to train someone how to uh, do the daily cash. I had to get my affairs in order, find someone to look after a dog, and get that 7.05 ferry to Vancouver to go be with my family. I managed to get the 7.05 ferry. Uh, I showed... One of the staff had to open the safe. Um, I, I walked them through things that needed to be done that week and sort of handed the reins of the property over to a couple of the staff members. It was, it's a long two and a half hour ferry ride to Vancouver when when you need to get to the hospital. I got off the ferry. I'd, uh, I got into a taxi, burst into tears in the taxi. Taxi driver uh, asked me if I was okay and I explained to him what was happening and he put some like rosary beads around my my neck. It was really a touching moment. <clears throat> I was driving to uh, driving to the children's hospital with a gentleman I had never met before in a taxi, and I was in tears. He was in tears, and he was praying. He was praying. Uh, he was uh, he was praying in a language I didn't understand. So uh, he could have been. Hebrew could have been could have been Moroccan could have been any language but he was praying and praying and he kept saying the same things over and over and over and he put more beads around my neck <clears throat> didn't charge me for the taxi ride um gave me a hug then I went into the hospital wow um my wife had uh sort of got an emergency flight I guess from Calgary yeah. and you know I went to go see my little boy who was in Terrific, terrific pain, and uh, we—you—you you don't know anything. You don't know um, cancer is a word, but there's so many multitudes and facets and diseases and strains and types, and the—the the not knowing is—is is the scariest part of it all. Not knowing anything about what's going on. So once we got to sit down with the oncologist and the nurses, and they—they they sort of talked about a, a what. Their thoughts were, and and the treatment path. It, there was a little bit more of a comfort level. One of the first things they said to us was, "Your son's been diagnosed with cancer. That, by all means, is not a death sentence. Just so you know." Uh, which was comforting to hear. And and as time went by, and and we learned more, and Alex learned more. My wife was because I had to go back and run the property. Uh, my wife stayed in the hospital with Henry, but. Once you start to learn and understand a little bit more and you understand what the medicines are and you understand sort of the procedures, you're still terrified. But at least the, the ignorance of not knowing anything at all sort of was worn away. So that was in August. And September 11th, 2011, there was a day organized at Port Brownham called I Love Henry Day. The community got together. There was, there was a silent auction. There was bands playing all day some of my staff, Lindsay Hampson, who uh, worked for me at the time, she'd organized a large part of the you know, I Love Henry Day. I can I can absolutely honestly say without uh without hesitation that that day, financially it, it saved us. You know, between going back and forth and the people I work for, you know, they said take as much time as you need or go, just go, just go. You know, we'll figure things out. But the From transportation to accommodation to meals to the the going back and forth there it costs a lot of money unfortunately the the world of medicine and all that stuff you know one one of the parents can stay, but you know oftentimes the other parent has to go to <clears throat> Ronald McDonald house or Easter Seals or something so from a charity baseball game that weekend to the Isle of Henry Day and so there was a day in Sydney called a hot dogs for Henry. The entire community, it seemed like, was at Port Browning Marina that day, bidding on items and and putting things up for auction. And there was a little special dance done for Henry that day by a a lady in the community. You know, just, again, it was just, it was a whole day of bursting into tears over and over and over again. So, you know, there was certain reasons that brought us to Pender Island. There's a little bit of me that kind of, like, Sneakily feels that we were meant to come to Pender Island because of some trials and tribulations we might face going down the road, and and what a what an amazing place to be, what a what a great place to be when you're when you're in trouble. And the old saying, "It takes a community to raise a child." Well, I, just, I can tell you that that is a, uh, a never been truer statement than uh, what I experienced on. September eleventh, two 2011. Uh, it was just uh, the showing of support and love was like nothing I've seen before. So, yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm touched and humbled and and uh, thankful. We we don't even know even to this day. My my wife and I. So there were so many intricate details put into that day that we don't even know about. There's people that donated and did things for us that we don't even know. We will we'll never meet. One gentleman, he donated 22 float plane flights back and forth to to Vancouver. He says, Joe, I don't want to give you money. I don't want to give you, I don't want to donate something monetary. What I want to do is give you the opportunity to have more time with your family. So this is, uh, I've been successful in business. I lost a job when I was young. Um, So I want to give you these float plane flights. So my wife never knew who he was until our second season at Joe's Place. And it was actually, it was this, this season. I said to my wife, do you remember those full plane flights I had? And, and uh, I was able to get back and forth and spend more time with you. Well, that gentleman sitting at table five right now, he's the guy that donated the flights. And as she approached the table, she started to get emotional and started to get upset. I said to her, "Don't talk to him now, geez. The restaurant's packed, and you're bursting into tears. Keep your act together. Talk to him afterwards." So the day, luckily, it was at the end of the day. So the day was just winding down, and then she went over to him and said, "I understand you donated some flights." And then the two of them broke into the, burst into tears, and then the, the kids broke into tears, and uh, and then there was this blubbering mess of crying people in the restaurant at the end of the day. So, um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was it there was it was an emotional time it was uh uh we still deal with it I mean we still go to uh children's hospital or we're able to go to the oncology clinic in in Victoria. Henry still has to go for blood tests. It's been seven years now, but it'll be something that needs to be monitored the rest of his life um they'll they'll want to track him make sure that his uh, if there's any markers in his blood he he's out of the woods like he's fine but Every time he scrapes his knee, or every time he has an upset tummy, you can't help but let your mind wander to what could this be? Yeah. So, what brought us to Pender Island? Was it a? I think it's just a fate, I guess. You know, like what a what a spot to be in when you're going through the worst time of your life. It's great.
0: For sure. And this was something that happened seven years ago. And, and uh, it seems like it's going to stick with you for the rest of your life. Clearly, you know, just, you know, being here in the room with you, listening to you tell the story. You know, yeah. Um, it's fresh.
1: It's still fresh. You know, last, not last Christmas, but the Christmas before Henry had some, it's uh, some growing pains like kids have. He woke up and one of his legs was feeling a bit sore and he was having a little bit of trouble putting weight on one of his legs, which was the beginning initial first sign that there was an issue with him when henry was uh when he was first diagnosed one of the things that happened was this really large tumor that was growing at the base of his spine started to lean on the nerves and the nerve endings uh with one of his legs and every time he went to his walk his leg would collapse he had to learn how to walk all over again he had to learn how to use his once he'd gone through the recovery and treatment um, and surgeries and chemotherapy once he'd done all that, he had to learn how to use his legs again. So he had to learn how to walk twice. Wow. Which is weird because he, he really likes to run. And I always oftentimes attribute that to... I wonder if he remembers back about not being able to to walk. And so that's why he likes to run everywhere. So
0: eh, kids like to run. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Running's fun. It is. Yeah. Well, the uh, the second traditional question we always uh, get to on this podcast is who's helped you along the way. But it seems like uh, that's that's been uh, answered without asking maybe just to tie off that uh that section there any particular uh, last thoughts on uh, on that in terms of um uh, of uh, other than the community huge community support that came with that event and anybody in particular you'd like to highlight or anything
1: i you know i i almost find it to be almost uh, i find that I would be almost leaning on the the unfair level if i was to pinpoint anyone in particular um You know, over the years since we've been here, so many different families, so many different people, uh, so many different casual acquaintances, people you don't expect have helped us uh, out along the way, even just to our, you know, from the house we live in to, you know, getting the restaurant, you know, getting the restaurant up and running. There's so many characters and individuals that have put their faith in us and believed in us and said, okay, you know, let's, let's help these guys out. And so, you know... Anyone in particular, I think in particular, it's the people of Pender Island. You know, from supporting the restaurant to be able to have a restaurant open seven days a week, any business open seven days a week on Pender Island is a, is, is tough. But to be able to have a breakfast and lunch place open seven days a week all year long is a testament to the support and and um, that the people of Pender Island give us. So. Um,
0: Gratitude for the people of Pender Island.
1: Yeah, yeah, we we like to feed people. You know, I, sometimes we get a little carried away with some of the crazy ideas that we have, but it's a lot of fun being creative. And, and uh, you know, now we're at a point, a point where, you know, the restaurant's doing well and we're plugging along in the right direction. But I'd love to get my hands on another project. Everyone knows that. I've been saying that for a long time. But I know the people of Pender Island have really great appetites and I really want to do something else for them. So... It's just a matter of finding the right place. All right. Yeah.
0: Uh, when you came here earlier today, we had a little chat beforehand, and uh, the topic of basketball came up, which I thought <laughs> was kind of interesting, yeah. and uh, I, it, it really tickled my curiosity. So I'm just going to ask you a little bit about basketball because yeah. it seems like that was a passion of yours when you were growing up.
1: Yeah when i when I grew up, I was a, I was a pretty good ball player. I uh, started playing basketball when I was nine. I I was in grade four at uh, Sydney Elementary. And when I was at grade five at Green Glade School in Sydney, when I was in grade four and five, I was playing basketball in the grade six team at North Sandwich. And uh, my best friend and I played basketball together all the way through high school. I would have loved to have gone to college or something like that, but who knows whether I, I was that good or not. But I got to play in men's leagues. I got a chance to uh, play basketball all through uh, in Beijing and Shanghai in the Shandong province in China. I uh, it's such a love and passion. I'm I'm really passionate about sports as a whole. If you come in the restaurant, you'll see my heroes sort of hanging on the wall, and you, the Wi-Fi password is Celtics seventy three because I'm a big Celtics fan. And but you know it's it's weird now because I'm I'm a little older and I'm I feel like I'm shorter and rounder than I was, and it's hard for people to imagine me uh, running up and down a basketball court and shooting the ball and and uh, but that's that's my first first love by far. I love the sport of basketball. When I was in school, I was I had just had a voracious appetite for basketball stats and that slowly started to carry over into baseball and hockey and then all the professional sports. And I really wanted to get into sports broadcasting. I wanted to take that knowledge of, of sports and love of sports on to the next level. And <clears throat> I did everything I could to get behind a microphone. I used to play Ken music uh, for weddings and stuff like that. I know nothing about music and the guy that I used to play canned music for, he would say, if you're not sure who the artist is or you don't know who does the song, just play Margaritaville because everyone loves Margaritaville, right?
0: <laughs> <So> I, <laughs> You'll always get somebody to come out to dance to Margaritaville. So I
1: Because I didn't know any... I didn't know very much about music. I used to play Margaritaville 10 times a night because people would ask me for songs I've never heard of before. So it was the same songs over and over. So... And, you know, I worked as a bingo caller for five and a half years. I used to sit on a microphone a lot like this one. And I would talk, I would call bingo numbers from 10 in the morning until 1 in the morning for, you know, 13 hours straight to be on a microphone. What? Seriously? 13 hours? Yeah, I I used to love it. You got a dollar a game and I would call uh, 90 games a day. That's how long it would take.
0: So wait, was this in Sydney or?
1: That was in Sydney where the Star Cinema is now, right beside the Good Fortune restaurant, uh, the Star Cinema used to be a bingo hall i believe it was a bowling alley before that in 1986 it opened as the Sandwich Peninsula Community Bingo Association and that's where i got involved in hospitality to begin with i started flipping burgers in the little in the little uh, cafe there i used to call bingo numbers in the daytime and flip burgers at nighttime there and uh, when i turned 19 and transitioned into the the bar business i was sort of offered a job in a bar I realized that the people who were playing bingo in the daytime were the same people that were coming to the pub at nighttime. It was just, they just talked differently at nighttime (laughs) after a few drinks.
0: Okay, a little more slow. Can can I get a bingo call (laughs) from you right now? Can we hear a bingo call?
1: A bingo call. Uh, What was my favorite number? 066 was my number. I used to go like this. I used to go under the 066. (laughs) People used to go crazy. (laughs) They're like, why do you do that? I'm like, it's just something I do.
0: (laughs) Oh, 66. Yeah, because
1: in bingo, you know, there's two little ducks and a stick and an egg, top of the house, and bottom of the house. Every every number has a call sign to it, right? So I never did that. I I was strictly to the numbers, except for 066. I used to, so as the years went by, I always used to extend it out longer and longer and longer. and. Because I knew it annoyed some people.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Your way of having fun. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, there was one particular lady that used to sit in the front row all the time and she used to shake her bingo dabber at me every time I did it so
0: <laughs> yeah I bet you loved it eh it's like oh she's shaking her dabber at me again I got, I got it. her <laughs> right on wow, five and a half years that trips me out though seriously that's uh yeah. that, like 13 hour days
1: it's a, yeah well because there's always a little bit of break between games so you can go and get a, a coffee or water and if it was one of the bigger games where we do a thousand dollar prize or we were giving away a microwave oven or a fridge full of stuff People would always buy extra cards. So you'd have seven, eight minutes between games sometimes to go and get a coffee or go to the bathroom. You have 386 people used to fit in there and all of them were looking at you talking on a microphone. And uh, I liked it. I thought it was a lot of fun. When I was in high school, my parents moved to Vancouver. My last year and a half of high school, I basically was renting a suite, renting a room, And uh, I needed to find a job. So I was sort of working and going to school, high school, and trying to figure things out on the fly. The bingo hall was, uh, I met some great friends there. In fact, the lady that wrote me the letter to come to Pender Island, that's how I met her, was she was a regular at the bingo hall. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, she she used to come in all the time. She used to uh, play bingo. And then, uh, you know, we became friends and she followed my hospitality career and so I mean, in some sense, you can you can attribute uh, me landing on Pender Island to my years as a bingo caller. You know, that's all all meshes together.
0: Yeah, it's funny. It's funny when you start looking back at the connections of your life, and then just uh, you see how. Yeah how precarious it is like how we wound up or is it fate i don't know but just get to back to basketball cuz you told an <laughs> interesting story uh earlier about what you and some friends did after you finished high oh, school oh
1: yeah right so my my very good friend of mine that uh, Darren who's uh, who lives in Phoenix Arizona and and we grew up together on the Sandwich Peninsula we when we graduated high school we jumped in his little Dodge Power Wagon truck and we drove down to the states and we went to all the capital cities or all of the really good cities and all the, the Western states and played pick a pickup game of basketball. We played, in a, we played in a three-on-three basketball tournament in the parking lot of Circus Circus in Las Vegas when I was 17 years old. And we just went out and we all we did was we drove around the city and we went and met guys and just played basketball. Because in those days, there was no iPads or cell phones or anything like that. You had to like go and look around and try to find games. We were just a couple of Canadian guys that were. We thought we were really good at basketball. We were okay, um, but we played a different style of basketball. You know, we we played in Salt Lake City. We played in Boise, Idaho. We played in uh, Phoenix, Vegas, San Diego, San Francisco, Anaheim, Billings, Montana. You know, we went to the Grand Canyon, and then we when we when we drove back, we finally got across the border back to Canada we said goodbye to each other. My good friend was going down to try to get involved in a a police academy in Los Angeles. And uh, we sort of, it was one of those like touching goodbye moments. (laughs) We did this epic basketball trip, got back, spent a day together going to Denny's and doing what we did. And then we said our goodbyes and, and uh, yeah, he went on to be a homicide detective, which is, which is amazing. And he just retired after 25 years of being a homicide detective. And uh, I'm trying to get him to come to Pender Island to visit Pender Island. But it's probably not his pace. He's more of a big city kind of guy.
0: Yeah. I mean, most people enjoy being here for at least a few days. But, yeah, who knows? It might yeah. turn into his pace. I just think that's so cool like to uh, just pick up and go on a road trip. And not just go on a road trip and drive around and, and look around at the sites. But yeah. to go look for some competitive basketball games yeah. like to play in and then just drive around looking for courts <laughs> and seeing people playing and, and doing that at such a young age and, and I guess like part of it was testing your medal against uh you know different people in different cities. That's so cool.
1: it's yeah, so you're you're exactly right and and uh, in some regards now like that's basketball is kind of a young man's game now and it really breaks my knees and, and now that I've discovered disc golf, now I take my disc bag and I'll go to disc parks Wherever. And if I see people playing, I'll say, Hey, can I pair up with you guys? And it's such a social sport, as is basketball. I got to meet some great guys, great players. I played pickup games. I, I, I've never met Steve Nash. Like, I can't, he would never say, Oh, I know Joe from Pender. But I did get to play with him once in a pickup game in Victoria. I mean, I, I could have played against people that actually had gone on to do things, but I would never have known. But I did know Steve because he was a couple of years. Behind me, and I recognized him, but and he he was still at SMU then. And I remember thinking, he's such a hot dog. Like he's he's, (laughs) (laughs) was he really? Yeah, Yeah. like he's trying to dribble between his legs and do go around the back, and he's using his left hand. It's like nobody nobody dribbles with their left hand. It's the eighties, right? So, and uh, I remember talking to my buddy, like this guy's a hot dog. Just force him left. He can't go left, and uh, and he could go left. He did very well going left. (laughs) So we just sort of zipped it from there, and yeah, I, w- I don't want to say he schooled us, but he definitely was a lot better than us. At that, end, he was he was three years younger than us. So, oh wow! Yeah, okay, three years younger. So
0: yeah, he he did go on to be an NBA uh, Hall okay. of Famer. I think he's in the Hall of Fame, or he's he's probably going to be. In he the
1: was Hall of Fame. MVP twice, and I believe he just he is he's going to be inducted in the Hall of Fame. But he was. Definitely MVP twice. I watched him play twice at my high school because when I, I used to go back and watch the the boys play all the time and uh, basketball, and the very first game I saw him play all the years I played high school basketball, I never once saw a dunk school, nobody dunked back then. you know, layups or finger rolls or something like that, or jump shots. And the first two baskets I saw in that game were him feeding the ball to a guy and dunking it. And I remember, again, thinking, that guy's a hot dog.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Nobody dunks. My gosh.
1: Yeah. What is – yeah. Who who does he think he is kind of thing. But he – like if I close my eyes, I can still remember him running up our court at my old Parkland High School and, you know, trying to look cool. Because I still wore my high school jacket then and trying to look cool and – if I, if I was still playing, I could show you what to do, but no, he, he was pretty good.
0: <laughs> well, that road trip that you took, any particular story that stands out from that journey that you took uh, with your one, buddy? There?
1: One particular one, it was in, we were playing in, um, we were playing in San Diego. We, we were uh, at a gymnasium, it was near Oceanside, Sorry, we were playing in Oceanside. We were playing uh, in a gym and we, I had just bought the ball down the court. And I passed off to a guy. It The ball came back to me. And then I passed to another guy. And uh, something happened. And we were back on on the bench sitting. And this guy says to me, you're not from around here, are you? I said, no, 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 I'm not. He's, he says, are you from Canada? I said, yeah, actually, we just drove down from Canada. Is it the way... I said, can you tell by my accent? He's like, no, I can tell by the way you play. He says, nobody passes the ball down here. <laughs> you're supposed to just... Everyone who gets the ball just shoots it and they're all about scoring. He says, he says, you, all you and your buddy do is pass the ball. That's funny. I know. And it, and I realized like, as I watched the games, like the guys would bring the ball down the court and they just fired up there and just try to score. And here we were bringing the ball down the court, looking to set screens, pass the ball, make a play. Cause that's how we were taught how to play. And this, he was a big guy. He's probably six foot five and, and he said to me, you know, you're you're not from around here because you I can tell because you're passing the ball. Nobody passes the ball, and uh, all of a sudden, and I remember that game specifically that the game didn't all of a sudden turn into a big passing game, but we started to get the advantage of the game because people were giving the ball up a little bit more and they were looking for their other players. So. Because uh, we just play a little bit more. He called it old school. He said, you guys play old school. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's so funny. Yeah. Usually just, just take the ball right to the hoop. Yeah, you don't you know, pass to the other yeah. guy on the team. You need the glory. Yeah. Or that, was that what it was? Because it was just playing like some pickup games. It was just a like, pickup
1: game. There was no stats. There was no, yeah. there was no glory. There was no league standings or anything like that. It was just you want to score because you want to look good. But... The thought of making a great pass so a guy can make a great shot wasn't really a thing, right Funny. so I guess we play old school so
0: it, that that story when I mean, you mentioned that earlier today really stood out to me as a really cool thing, but we're nearing the end of our time here pretty quick. Any other uh, travel stories that you want to share because it seems like you've done a lot of traveling anyway. <laughs>
1: um, when uh, when Henry went through his uh treatment and chemotherapy and surgery and Uh, When he was three, when I was uh, asked if I would re-sign my contract with Port Browning Marina, um, I said yes, but I want to go spend some time with my family. Um, So when Henry was three, we took him to Europe for six weeks. He got to go to the top of the Eiffel Tower, the Arc de Triomphe. He saw Big Ben. He's been to uh, the top of uh, Prague Castle. He's... Sailed across the Lake Geneva. He's been on a train through the Alps and hiked up to castles. And um, he's been to the top of the Empire State Building. He's been to the MGM Grand and looked at the lines. He's had uh, done a fair amount of traveling. And for a little guy, and in fact, just before we, uh, just before I came down here today, I was emailing a guy because I, I really, we have this when the travel bug hits you, it hits you, and right? you just want to go and do something. I slowly putting together the idea of maybe my wife really wants to go to back to Vietnam and Thailand. I'm more of a going to Norway and Iceland type traveler. So I'm trying to figure out a way to incorporate the two trips.
0: Okay. They're uh, pretty far apart.
1: Yeah, they they are pretty <laughs> far apart. So, but I was, I've been emailing and chatting with a guy who organizes these types of adventures for contrasting travel personalities. And so, uh, but I mean, you know, we we we've traveled a little bit, you know. We did that European trip with Henry, and and uh, it was great to spend six weeks with my family and just delve all my time into them. And of course, we got to travel all around England and Scotland when we uh, lived and worked over there. We worked in some great great areas, not great pubs. Um, saw a lot of it, and I went to the Orkneys a little while ago, and way up and traveled around the Orkney Islands and met a, another guy up there. Last year, I went to. Scotland and the South of England and met people and played disc golf over there and Wales and played some courses that are humbling, humbling as heck. Boy, oh
0: boy, windy and long
1: windy. And if you, you know, for those of you who don't know what disc is all about, when I say I have understable discs, when I throw them, they basically take a nosedive and hit the ground because the wind just grabs them and tosses them to one side. So you got to have a pretty big, powerful arm over there and, and, you know, the course we have on Pender Island is you can putt your way around the course. It's pretty small. When I went over there and I had my disc bag and there's, I've got lots of aces, holes and ones. I'm playing with these guys that are really big throwers and they look at my discs and I'm like, wow, you must be really good. You got so many aces and you, <laughs> <laughs> and then I get to the course and their holes are miles away. <laughs> and I'm like, no, our, our, we have a pretty small course. Yeah. So yeah, I've, I've got some aces, but. I don't anticipate any any aces over there. When you play on those big courses with those guys, their discs are shiny and polished and beautiful and they look fantastic. And when you take a, a tree bashing disc like I have over there, it's just a bruised scraped up you know, a piece of plastic that you try to use as a disc. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. Well, we're, we're pretty much near the end of our time here, but, uh, I just want to, uh, yeah, just send it back your way and see if there's anything that you want to end off and, uh, any final words you want to add to this, uh, interview? Uh,
1: mostly I just want to, you know, thank you for the opportunity to come and chat. And, and, uh, secondly, uh, you know, I just, I said it at the beginning of my chatting about Pender Island was that, uh, Thank you to Pender Island for, for embracing us and me and my wife and my, my son. And, and, you know, you guys have really wrapped your arms around us, uh, on several occasions and we've had some pretty emotional times and, uh, you know, I, I can't think of a better place to live. Awesome, Joe. Thanks for coming in. Thank you.
0: All right. Well, to honor that interview, I decided I would come down to Boat Nook. So Boat Nook is a little ocean access point. It's located on the North Island just off of Schooner Way. There's a single car parking spot and you walk down a path that's probably about 50 meters long and it comes out into this tiny little bay. I don't even know if you can call it a bay. I guess it's called the nook, Boat Nook. But anyway, so <laughs> there's a little park bench here. There's a dedication on the bench. It says Derek and Jenny, 2013. And we're facing towards the direction of Sydney across the water right now. You can see some BC ferries going by. And I thought this was a great place to wrap up the interview to honor Joe because every time I come down here, I find this to be a really comforting spot. And I find Joe a really comforting person to be around. So I thought it was the perfect spot. That's it for me, everybody. Until next time.